God is love. We read that in 1 John chapter 4 this morning, two times in that chapter. We read this statement that God is love. Verse 8, verse 16. What does that mean? What does it mean to you? How do you hear and interpret the statement that God is love? Your answer is a matter of life and death. Your answer is crucial to your relationship with God and probably will reveal where you stand with God right now. How will you hear that phrase if you are walking in rebellion against God? If you are bitter against Him? You may hear that statement, God is love, and bristle and say, no, He isn't. And let me share with you the facts that He's not a God of love. Perhaps you're here this morning and you say, I really don't know much about the Bible, much about God, and I hear that phrase, God is love, and I really don't understand at all what it means. Well, stay tuned. But I might also just challenge you here at the beginning that it is very possible to hear that phrase, God is love, and to fill it up with any type of meaning that you choose. We're going to look at Scripture and say that that is really not wise. And we need to be cautious to define this idea of God's love carefully. Let's take up another case. There are churches who believe that all people are inherently good and do not need to be saved from hell. Jesus Christ did not die to pay for sin. God is not angry with sinners. God accepts all people just as they are. What will you invariably find in such a church? You could just about take it to the bank. You'll find somewhere in such a church a banner declaring God is love. Or it'll be on the bulletin or somewhere like that, but you will see this, or this appeal to Scripture that God is love. Such Christians hold a view of God's love that is purposefully severed from any notion of God's holiness and wrath. We could go even a bit further. In the book, The Love of God, John MacArthur reports a cult group called the Children of God, they're sometimes referred to as the Family of Love, who practice a method of evangelism which they call love bombing, by which they seek to demonstrate the love of God to new recruits by offering to sleep with them. Now this is obviously a strange and aberrant group, but is it not interesting that the doctrine they tie themselves to is the doctrine of God's love? David Wells has observed that political activists often interpret God's love to be an argument in favor of their particular agenda. I think he has a very insightful point here. He illustrated it himself with a sign that was lofted high outside a pending execution. So if you have a political agenda against capital punishment, you may well appeal to the idea that God is love. You will see it at rallies supporting homosexuality these days. A sign saying, God is love. What does it mean that God is love? It obviously means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. What does God mean, however, when He declares that He is love? How do you understand this statement? And what difference does it make in your life? I'd like to approach this topic for a few weeks here together, and to do so today in an inductive approach. That is, I'd like to define what God's love is at the end of the sermon. But let's walk our way through and consider His revelation. 
as we work our way to a definition of what God's love truly is. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, 1 John 4, 16, we find this declaration that God is love. In the original text, we read, The God, love is. Greek scholars note that by using the article, the, as John does here, by constructing the statement precisely this way, John assures that the phrase cannot be reversed. We cannot say that love is God. But by putting it this way, the love God is, God is not then a mystical energy, a mere sensation, or a common relational experience. Love is not all that God is. For that matter, John also claims what? He also claims that God is light. Those aren't contradictory terms. What is being said here is that God in His essential nature is love. Vaughn puts it this way, love is such a necessity of God's nature, such an integral aspect of His very essence, that He cannot exist without loving. Love flows unimpeded from the nature of God at all times. So whatever it means that God is love, we must recognize that He is just that, love. Love flows from His very essence. So we see here the declaration of divine love. Secondly, then, to the demonstration of divine love. And I'd like to take this theme up under the heading, first of all, of the relationship within the Godhead. There's an excellent section on this idea in the great work by Stephen Sharnock, The Existence and Attributes of God. I've taken some information from him and some from others and developed some of these thoughts in my own way, but this is a profound study. And you realize as you begin to talk about the nature of God that you have entered into a very deep theme. God is love. What does that mean as we consider the relationship of the triune God. God, first of all, is eternal. He has no beginning or ending. And God is immutable. Let me put those two ideas together. By immutable, we mean that He never has, never will, and by His very nature cannot change. So simply put, it means this. Follow me here. What God is, He has always been and forever will be. What God is, He has always been and He will forever be. This means that God has always loved. You notice that John does not say in this section, we'll go to it more carefully in, in a few moments, but John does not say in this section that God has the inherent capacity to love. And then when God created Adam and Eve, He began to love. That is not how it is put in Scripture. God is eternal and God is immutable. He is unchangeable. Therefore, Scripture declares that God is love. Love is intrinsic to God's very nature. This can only mean, as the great historian Augustine noted many centuries ago, that God has always loved Himself. God has always loved Himself. Now hang on to that thought as we go to the next idea. God is eternal. God is immutable. God is good. There is nothing in the nature of God that is impure, nothing that is evil in any sense of the word. God is pure goodness. If God was not good, it would be evil for Him to love Himself with an infinite and eternal love. 
And if there was a greater goodness than God, he would be evil for not loving that superior good. But since there is no greater source of goodness, since God is perfect goodness himself, God would be evil if he did not love himself. Do you believe this? It is sin not to love God. It is sin not to love God, the supreme goodness. Therefore, God honorably loves himself with an infinite love. God is no idolater. He is not a sinner. God loves himself eternally, infinitely, in goodness. We then consider that God is all-wise. This means that God alone can know the fullness of His own goodness, and so God alone can love God with a perfect love. Only sin and immaturity keeps us from loving God. Since there is no sin or immaturity in God, He loves Himself perfectly. Now, such talk is troubling to us. Because we think of self-love as sinful, and I think we should. Now, there is a type of self-love which is just natural and is appropriate. The type of self-love that keeps you from walking over the edge of a cliff. You act in your own self-interest. You brush your teeth. That is self-love, and that is natural to us. We look out for our own neck and for our own interest in a, in a, in a small way, but in a legitimate way. But we also know, as Scripture develops, that there is a self-love which is inherently evil. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul writes to Timothy about the evil last days. And one of the sins in that list is what? That people will become lovers of self in a sinful way. Here's what then we must grasp as we consider the love of God. First of all, we've already said that it's perfectly pure and good. But we must then consider this unique truth about God, and that is that He is triune. God is one being, not three. He is one in essence. But within that being, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This means that God's self-love flows eternally between the three persons of the Godhead. Let's note John chapter 17 and verse 24. We'll come back to 1 John later. John 17 and verse 24. This is not a theme that is carefully developed within the Scriptures. It is a theme to which we must arrive, and the only conclusion to which we must arrive, that God loves Himself. But we see this in the outworking of the Trinity. John 17 verse 24 gives us a clear picture of this mutual love between the persons of the Godhead. John 17, 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus the Son says to God the Father, you have loved me before the creation of the world. Before Adam and Eve, God loves himself within the triune nature of the Godhead. So God's love of Himself is eternal, it is immutable, it is perfect, it is complete, it is pure. It is not one-dimensional and idolatrous as is our love of ourselves as creatures. And is there not in this awe that there is this perfect and complete, eternal, never-starting, never-ending, absolute, infinite love in God? The Father 
the Son, and the Spirit sharing this perfect, pristine love. There is awe in that. But left to stand by itself, the truth of God's eternal and perfect love for himself would produce nothing but wonder. But there is good news. There is good news, and that is that God's love was so full, so rich, so real, that it overflowed and spilled onto us. And so there is for us not only wonder, there is for us today joy. There is for us an entrance into that love that God has had for himself throughout all eternity. He incorporates others into that love. He pours out his life to us in love. This is good news indeed, and it is news that God shares with us through this book of Revelation. Let's go, uh, first of all, if, you, if you'll make your way to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And some people would stop us here and say, wait a minute. God is love. This is his nature. Why are we going to the Old Testament? There's no God of love in the Old Testament. Many have struggled to see a God of love in the Old Testament for many centuries. In the second century, there was a heretic named Marcion who went so far as to say that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the God Jesus revealed. The apostles were all confused about it and they mixed it up and didn't get the right God, but there was this evil God, this vindictive, angry, hateful God in the Old Testament and a good God that Jesus revealed in the New Testament. This new God, this good God, I should say, ruled by a law of love. And so Marcion proclaimed, isn't this interesting again, that God, the true God, was a God of love. Denying that God created the universe as Genesis 1 demands, denying this God of the Old Testament. Well, this is a theme that has been taken up throughout the centuries. This is a theme in more recent times modernist theologians have advanced, claiming that Christian theology is an evolutionary development from the old and cruel religion of the ancient Jews. You could pick up a book today in a Christian bookstore or some bookstore that would say this very thing. Some individual probably within a mainline denomination writing a book and saying that we have evolved away from the God of the Jews of the Old Testament, this vindictive and hateful God. And what leads them to say that the God of the Old Testament is evil and vindictive and angry and unloving? What leads them to say that is their understanding of who God is. He is a God of love, they will say over and over again. And so much like Marcion, the liberals of today say the same thing, that God is a God of love, and therefore we must dismiss the Old Testament. Well, be it the Marcionites of the second century or liberal theologians in the mainline denominations of our day, one must wonder what Bible they're reading. The love of God flows through the Old Testament. Now, it awaits its greatest demonstration in the New Testament, undoubtedly. True divine love awaits that fulfillment. However, it is clear that God loves, the God of the Old Testament loves, and particularly we see this love as it reaches down in love for Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6. God speaking to Israel 
in his electing purposes says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. You'll notice here that God chooses Israel out of the nations. God initiates this relationship with his particular people. He selects Israel to be his treasured possession. That is, they belong to him uniquely. Now what motivates God to choose Israel? Verse 7, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. What makes a nation great? What makes a nation great? Well, if it was a beauty contest, what makes someone great in a beauty contest is beauty. What makes someone great in some type of economic contest is money. What makes someone great in, a, in an athletic or musical contest is their abilities. What makes a nation great is her power, her size, her ability to move. But says God, when it comes to how you judge nations, you had nothing. You were not more numerous than other people. You were not a powerful nation. You were the fewest of all peoples. A late-breaking nation that got a very slow start and was very small. This nation God chooses in His love. Verse 8, what motivated Him? It wasn't you, verse 7, but verse 8, but it was because the Lord loved you. Simply put, God loved Israel because God loved Israel. Because he loved you and kept the oath, he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a hand, a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The motivation was God's love. Nothing motivated his love outside of himself. And the demonstration was his deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. This was the ultimate demonstration. These ten plagues upon the people of Egypt was a demonstration of God's love for Israel, his intense all-out love. You think a liberal reading of Scripture is missing something here? It's saying that the Old Testament God is a vindictive, angry, judgeful God, and God says, I loved you with an infinite love, and here's the display, the destruction of Egypt. Throughout Scripture, there is a God of love. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love he says of Israel. Lamentations 3.22, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. We can go through the Psalms and we could turn to one after another that boast of God's mercy and grace and long-suffering kindness and unparalleled love. We see the love of God in His election of Israel. We see the love of God, however, epitomized thirdly in the sacrifice of the Son. As we work our way to a definition of God's love, the words of A.W. Tozer are applicable here. He says this, We do not know and we may never know what love is, but we can know how it manifests itself, and that is enough for us here. Well, I'm going to try to do what Tozer says you can't do and define love. We'll give it a shot, but I know what he means. Love does defy definition, but it is not above demonstration. I don't know what electricity is. I can't tell you what light is, but I know how they manifest themselves, and to some degree then I can understand them. 
And I think that is precisely what John is doing here in 1 John. If you'll make your way back there again, we'll look first of all at chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Notice that John does not lay out a simple definition, but really moves straight to demonstration. God's love is demonstrated in the sacrifice of the Son. Chapter 3 and verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. How do you understand the love of God? Hear me clearly. How do you understand the love of God? This verse reveals that the meaning of divine love is comprehended only as one looks to the cross. Love is comprehended in Jesus laying down His very life for our ultimate benefit. Look to chapter 4 and verse 9. We find a very similar statement in chapter 4, verse 9. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is how God showed His love. This is the demonstration of it. The word showed, the Greek word means to reveal, to make clear. It is usually found in context where it expresses the unveiling of a truth to man which has been hidden in God in the past. God has revealed, He has opened up to us, He has shown to us His love in a unique way when He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. He sent Him among us. He showed this love among us. The word among us here means in our case or in our interest. Notice verse 10. This is love then, declares John 4.10. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is bloody speech. This is bloody talk. This is talk of sacrifice. He gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God's love is self-sacrificial. It gives itself away in concrete acts of benevolence in the interest of the beloved. And that theme is developed throughout Scripture. Let me take you to a couple of other places quickly. Romans chapter 5 and verse 7. Romans 5 and verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. You see the phrase again? Demonstration. God demonstrates His love for us. How? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the demonstration of His love. Divine love is not grounded in human merit. It is not based on reciprocal response. Divine love gives itself away in holy abandon. Ephesians chapter 2. And verse 4, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, because of His great love for us. God did what? He made those dead in transgressions and sins alive. 
John 3, 16. Perhaps the most noted verse in all of Scripture, in, in the New Testament at least, declares that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Verse 17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. He loved the world, and thus He gave. Two enemies He gave His Son. To those dead in transgressions and sins, He gave His Son. To them He laid down the Son in sacrifice. So as we think of what John means when he declares that God is love, it is vital that we take this statement in context. I need flashing lights here to make this point. Follow with me. We must take John's statement in context. What does it mean that God is love? How do you read that statement? We must understand when John says God is love, that he is saying that in the context that God gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Now at this place, many aberrant views take over, and we want to challenge those views as we defend the faith. I've mentioned liberal theology. Let's take that and put it under the spotlight for a moment. How do you understand love? It is defined by the giving of the son, the sacrifice of the son. Liberal theology's problem is not really that it cannot see a God of love in the Old Testament. That's not the point. Any child that can read the Old Testament can know that God loves. The problem of the liberal is this. He cannot accept that God's love walks comfortably with His justice and wrath. And that each is poured out from His being in absolute perfection at all times. Do you have the capacity to understand that God is a God of judgment and wrath and anger and love and that none of those cancel each other out? Liberal theologians define love by severing the idea from the holiness and the severity of God. God is love, they say. He would therefore never judge anyone for sin or send anyone to hell because He is love. He would never be angry with sin. The result is a view of God that is detached from reality and from revelation. But maybe moving a little bit closer to home, we have, secondly, a move toward a theocentric versus Christocentric theology that even some evangelicals are promoting today. What do we mean by that? There are evangelicals today, and certainly they're on the fringes, but they are arguing that the love of God is expressed in all religions. Christ is present in all of the other religions. His saving power is present in all of the other religions, and therefore God saves people out of His love apart from their knowledge of Christ. The agenda is that the love of God is made broader since no one is condemned by God's wrath. We expand the love of God. We make it greater because no one is condemned. Here's the problem. This is not the love of God as God defines it. We can stand to, in the face of God and say, here is how I define love. But God responds, this is what love is. I gave my son to die for sinners. 
God's love is cross-oriented. God's love is never severed from His wrath and holiness. God's love gave the Son who bore the full weight of God's holy anger against sin. All that judgment came down on Christ's head. This act of self-giving, sacrificial substitution defines God's love. Those who offer such theories propose to increase the greatness of God, but in fact they take the ultimate display of God's love and they dismiss it as unnecessary. They say Jesus did not need to die. God says the very nature of love is described in the death of Jesus Christ. It's epitomized. Let's put one other strain of thinking under the spotlight, and for this the pendulum swings widely. I'll refer to it as Reformed theology, though this word is used by many different people in many different ways. There is a strain of anxious Reformed theology, anxious to maintain the holiness and severity of God. It swings too far, and it has begun to promote the notion that God loves only the elect. That God has chosen individuals from eternity past whom He will save, and that the cross has only those individuals in mind, and that the love of God only meets those people. God's love has nothing to do with those who are lost. Now, as we know, in the passages such as Ephesians 1 and 2 and Romans 8 and 9 and following, we know that God chooses to save that He elects individuals. The Bible teaches this very clearly. But there is one, for instance, a a widely read Reformed theologian named Arthur Pink, who in John 3.16 interprets the passage to say this, that God gave His Son, that He loved the world of the elect, and so gave His Son to die for sin. And many would draw then from something such as Psalm 7.11 that says, God is angry with the wicked every day. So God's love does not pertain to the lost in any way, shape, or form. His love is only for the believer. Now let me offer just a few arguments in opposition to this idea. First of all, not that it means anything, but it's nice to just throw in here. John Calvin, the greatest hero of the Reformed faith, in fact the father of the Reformed faith, didn't believe that about John 3.16. And you can read in his commentary on the harmony of the evangelists, his uh, work on the Gospels, that he says at John 3.16 that this very clearly demonstrates the love of God for all people. Now, that means nothing what John Calvin thought, but it is an interesting point. However, I think we can see in the text of John 3 itself, verse 17, an answer to this idea. Let's just read it this way, that the world here is the world of the elect, those who will be saved. Let's read it that way, John 3.16, For God so loved the world of the elect, that He gave His one and only Son, no problem thus far, that whoever believes among the world of the elect in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For, verse 17, God did not send His Son into the world of the elect to condemn the world of the elect but to save the world of the elect through him. Verse 17 just absolutely destroyed itself. It is a non-statement. God did not send his son to save those he was going to condemn. That, is, that doesn't say anything. 
that he did not send his son to condemn those that he would save is an obvious point and made clear from verse 16. So I think this is a poor way of understanding John 3, 16 and 17. In fact, I found in Pink's writing that he acknowledged that God, that there was only one place in the New Testament that God says he loves the lost, and that's John 3.16. I wrote in the margin of my book, well, <laughs> it is there. And so let's deal with it and not argue it away. He apparently was uh, attacked on that point because in the, his next commentary he put in the margin this idea that this is referring to the world of the elect. It's not referring to the world of the elect, or verse 17 makes no sense. But let's say this, and let's go more positively to answer this view. I think, thirdly, we can be very angry with people that we love. Yesterday, for me, <laughs> as a father, there are times when you can be very angry with people that you love. You know that experience, right? Those of you that maybe a mate or some other believer, somebody you love very much that causes some problems, you love them with all of your heart, but you can get angry with people that you love. That's possible. It's possible for us and it's possible for God. When Romans 9.13 speaks of God's hatred towards sinners, I think that that is not incompatible with the statement that He loves all and is still loving toward them. Matthew 5 45. God loves the wicked by showering down His common grace upon them. He's angry with them. And so in that sense, we can speak of the hatred of God towards sinners and also the love of God. We can love people and be angry with them. Secondly, we can love people in different ways. Can we not? God does not love everyone equally no more than any of us are capable of loving everyone equally. Now, I suppose God could have chosen to do that, but He obviously did not, and there are passages of Scripture that make that very clear. But just as I may love, in the right sense of the world, many women, there is one woman that I have loved in a unique way, my wife. That does not mean I only love her and hate everyone else. It means that my love for her is unique and special. And that is exactly, I think, what is the case with the love of God. He does love people uniquely, his own, his people. But that does not mean he doesn't love others. God is under no obligation to love. His love is not earned. But this is not to say that he cannot love someone he does not elect for salvation. So... If you follow me here, love cannot be defined however we choose. And that is the thing I'd like you to key into here today. You cannot define love however you choose. We must define love as God defines it. God's love is epitomized in Christ giving His life for us. That's what genuine love is. God's love is best seen with the bloodied back of the sun stuck to the harsh grains of the cross with head and hands and feet and side bleeding. God's love is best seen with the wrath of God draped over the corpse of Jesus as His limp body is lowered on, from that tree to the ground and prepared for burial. That is how God defines His love, and we have no place to define it any other way. So let me offer a brief definition of love. God's love 
is his native orientation to abundantly give of himself for the greatest good of others apart from any consideration of what they deserve. God's love is his native orientation. That means it is within him. It's inseparable from who he is by nature. God's love is his native orientation to abundantly give of himself To abundantly give. This is the great love of God that He pours out His life for the sinner. Ephesians 1, 5-8. Titus 3, 4-7. Ephesians 4 that we read earlier. To abundantly give of Himself for the greatest good of others. Their greatest good. His love accords with all of His other attributes. So He loves in a way that fits His justice and His holiness and His purity. God's love is never detached from these aspects of His being. You would be angered. You would be rightly angered if someone said of you, because you love people, you love all the things that they do. There may be a neighbor that you've chosen to love and to give yourself to and to help and to care for, and because that neighbor goes and does something stupid one night, maybe hits his wife, comes home drunk and hits her in the eye or something, and then people say, well, you love him, therefore you support what he's doing. Not at all. It's not what love does. Love does not condone all that the beloved does. Love gives of its very best. And that is its love. Love is the aspect of God's nature that drives Him to give of Himself for our good. I'm sorry, let me pick up on the definition. It's His native orientation to abundantly give of Himself for the greatest good of others apart from any consideration of what they deserve. Love is not earned God's love is not earned or based on merit. It is not a response to what one has done. It is not a love that is simply mutually nourished. Love is the aspect of God's nature then that drives Him to give of Himself for our good. And our good is what? Our greatest good is God. And so God loves Himself and spills out that love to us and He loves us. He is the fountain of all goodness. And in His love, He pours out that goodness upon us. God is love. How do you understand that statement? Please put in your mind a picture of Christ on the cross. Because if that picture is not in your mind, you will define love inappropriately and it will lead you down wrong paths. Do you know the love of God in a personal way? There is good news in all of this. God's love is much deeper than we might expect. God's love is much deeper than simply promoting what my agenda is or what I think to be right. God's love is connected to the cross, but there's good news in this. He hung on that cross because He loved you. You have not come to a place where you understand that He died there for you to bear your sins. And you have not come to place your confidence and your trust in that work that He did for you. I would say to you, I believe on the authority of Scripture that God loves you. He did do that for you. 
and you must embrace him and trust his work, letting go of sin and embracing him as Savior and Lord. I would call you to that today. And I would call those of us who have come to that place of saving faith, Christian, to ask the question, how are you defining the love of God in your life? False definitions always twist God's love so that it supports a false agenda. We must be cautious to view God's love from the angle of the cross and to see it there. And as we do, I believe, and this is the primary motivation, I guess, for this topic. One thing is I just would want to know and desire to know the love of God. And I trust that you do as well. But I also believe that there is at the heart of many of our failures as Christians a fundamental misunderstanding of what God's love is. And it leads us to enjoy a less than successful walk with God. I'm not saying that this is some kind of novel truth or key that will fix your life, but I am saying that we must come to terms with the true meaning of the love of God so that we can apply that love in our Christian walk as God intends us to apply it. And I think that many Christians, that I struggle with applying love as God intends for it to be applied. So we build a foundation here as we consider the love of God and moved by His grace to continue to consider this theme and how this love is to evidence itself in our individual lives as we live before this God of love. Let's bow for prayer. God, I really believe that as I come before you and as we come before you in prayer, that one of the great evidences of our weakness and immaturity is that we consider your love and it doesn't really carry much weight. We don't tingle with the thought. We aren't awed by the thought. We have as your people, I fear at times become complacent when we hear the words, God is love, and God so loved the world. In this is the love of God demonstrated that he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice. Lord, these truths ought to thrill us to the core of our being. This theme and this truth of your love ought to be rich and big and great in our minds. And sadly, God, for I think we would all admit it is not. We have become accustomed to your love. And Lord, perhaps some of that is because we have failed to see it for what it truly is. I pray, God, that in the vision of our mind we might see now a cross with your Son having been turned over to wicked men who beat him and crucified him, who mocked him and killed him. And they did so not because you were weak, but they did so because you loved us. God, may that truth settle down into our souls and may it change us. May it transform us. I pray, may it cause us, Lord, to tingle. May we feel it. 
what you have done and sense it and understand it and to be moved by it. Lord, as we consider your love, I pray that you will do a work in our lives and in our church. God, that the cold spirit that we may have brought to this sermon today, to this truth today, would be transformed as we continue to consider your love in its connection to holiness and truth and glory. May we have a great sense of the joy in this message that you have loved the world. If there is one who does not know that love in a personal way, I pray, dear God, that you'll draw that soul to saving faith today. We cannot know your purposes in the end from the beginning, but we just pray that you will save, that you will draw. Lord, that others would enter into this love of God. We have a message for this lost and suffering world. And I pray that we'd proclaim that message this week and that you would allow us to be faithful to declare that God has loved, and he has loved in a very specific way. May we declare this gospel, and may we draw others into this circle of infinite divine love, which comes from your throne and your purposes and your eternal counsels. Lord, move us and change us and forgive us our sin as we consider your love and are apathetic. God, change that and move us through it. We would grow and become the people that you want us to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.